Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No problem. Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond, especially beyond today, as uh, we have a little tri-state chatter here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, uh, the, uh, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, uh, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And whatever characters I have, I'm sure, not wh- whether it's uh, the suburbs of New Jersey or heading out to Rockville Center in Long Island or just within the boroughs themselves, there, there's bound to be some either family members or friends that get introduced. And without further ado, let us get into this tri-state chatter. And before we bring on our featured guest, I'm just going to say hello to the Brooklyn Trolley blogger himself, Mike LaCola. What's going on, Mike? Hello. Hello, Sam. Hello, Rob. Hello, everybody and baseball fans. Thank you for the invitation. Well, as always, it's, it's, and, and something that you and I have discussed uh, regarding this entire region, uh, it's, it's always nice to put Brooklyn within the context of the five boroughs, especially considering they were so reluctant originally to join the five boroughs. So you can't tell the story of Brooklyn without telling the story of the entire tri-state. And, and, and somebody who has called into the show before, and in fact, the last time he called in, I didn't even realize he was on the board, so I wanted to give him an entire episode uh, just devoted to himself, and that is the Bronx native and Yankee fan, Rob Lopez. Rob, thank you so much for joining the Bedford and Sullivan podcast tonight. Uh, Sam, thank you for the invite, and uh, Mike, as I spoke to you a few minutes before, it, it's, it's nice to finally meet you guys on the audio side of this, and uh I look forward to the chat, and uh, I think we're going to have a good time with some of this baseball history. I agree, and I do find it fascinating, you know, considering that, that like we were talking about right before this, uh, your your youthful age, considering the material uh, of, that I cover within uh, uh, this podcast and within uh, online. Um, and it's, so it all, it's always fascinating to me how somebody gains such an appreciation, especially considering not to say that Yankee fans don't necessarily look towards the National League side of things, but I think it is rare that you'll have somebody as swept up with the entire history of New York baseball as you. So before we really get into the weeds, let's just get an overview, both in terms of your baseball fandom history as well as your personal tri-state history. Okay, go ahead, shoot. Well, no, just please, uh, by all means, wherever oh. you want to begin with that, your Yankee history, oh, okay. your, your tri-state history, wherever you just give us an oh. overview of Rob Lopez himself. All right, well, I was born, I was born in the Throgneck section of the Bronx, so it's uh, basically the two bridges uh, that connect Queens to the uh, – to, to the Bronx, it's uh, you got the Whitestone and the Throgs Neck, and I was born basically in uh, right on the shores of the Long Island Sound, and I was uh, I had lived my good 
good part of my my life in in that in that area before moving up to Westchester County. So, but being from that area, which at the time was still very predominantly Italian Irish, it was also a you know a huge you know a huge you know baseball community where the apartment building I grew in was a, a huge mix of different different ethnicities, and you know sports was always just always. Uh, you know, paramount in on that street where I grew up on, and it was you know back at the time where I'm sure you know Mike could I definitely identify with. Uh, you know, there was always stickball outside. Uh, you know, uh, two hand touch football. Uh, not too much soccer. There was street hockey, but the way we played street hockey was no skates. It was just basically like on foot in the street, very rough. And uh, but for the for, for me, on the most part. I was just always obsessed, even, you know, going, you know, and I was trying to think about what am I going to talk about here. I'm like, I, like my earliest memories was just sitting in front of the TV. I remember j- just being like watching baseball and that would be the one thing that I would just sit down and I would be calm just sitting there, just staring at the TV, watching these, you know, what I'm guessing as far back is like, you know, starting in the mid seventies, I was born in 72. So my earliest memories, I remember seeing, because of the way the uniforms stuck out was those old Oakland A's uniforms. Uh, and and in, in the household I grew up at the, uh, was, you know, my, my father was a Yankee fan. So when the Yankees, uh, I, I really don't recall, I don't have no recollection of it, but my father scored tickets to the first, I guess, grand reopening of the stadium, which was, I think, April 15th of 76. So, uh and at the time, all the tickets to that particular game were, were like souvenirs. So he kept that for, which it's in my possession now, for, for decades and decades and in perfect condition. So, as like I said, I have no recollection of the game, but that was the first baseball game I attended. So that was, uh, I think, uh, Rudy May started the game for the Yankees. Uh, they won against the Minnesota Twins, something like, I think, 7-2 to or 8-2, to something like that. But, uh, yeah, that was my very first baseball game. And uh, and what followed was actually that was, you know, the beginning, is, as you guys know, the, you know, the resurrection of that franchise. So I grew up, you know, in the midst of, you know, uh, nothing but, you know, probably mostly Met fans at the time where I lived. But, I you know, my household was Yankees. So, you know, my earliest memories is Reggie, Thurman Munson, Mickey Rivers, Bucky Dent, uh, you know all those guys from that uh, from that mid mid to late seventies dynasty. So and that carried on for many many years, going into the eighties and uh, up until today. So, but you know over the years I've kind of always I've, I've I used to play that Yankee Met you know hate back and forth, but I think by the time I was in my mid twenties, I kind of like you know, lost that because I, I learned to appreciate what the Mets, you know, that franchise, you know, what they were. And I think I, I remember the time where I found out, like, how did the Mets come to be? And when my, my the relatives right. on my father's side, uh, who are the Brooklyn fans, which I'll get to later when you ask more questions, uh, they're the ones that told me about, well, this team was created from the abandonment of the two teams that used to play here. So when that was all explained to me, I was just absolutely fascinated by it. So it was uh, I've always had a, a respect for, for, for the Mets, and I was always interested in, you know, uh, like how that franchise was created because of, you know, what happened with the, uh, 
you know, the eventual leaving of the, of the Dodgers and the Giants. And uh, I I don't know if I'm sure I've mentioned it on here uh, before, but uh, I don't know how deep I went to. Like, I don't know if there's a cricket team. I don't know if there's a a football, uh, a European football team or any other franchise that uh, I think the Mets are a unicorn, as as, uh, Greg Prince, uh, one of our favorites of Faith and Fear and Flushing, would say. The Mets are a unicorn team when it comes to the way they were created. I, I don't I think they're unique and and one and unto themselves of being created from two teams being uh, leaving a a certain city. So, uh, Mike, you know, I think that uh, Staten Island will have something to say about uh, this, this phrase, this, this, this uh, thought process, excuse me. Um, But you and I have discussed how we believe that upper Manhattan and the Bronx are the most underrated parts and underexplored parts of New York city. And again, I personally, I, I, Staten Island's the only one I have not lived in, and I feel like if I'm ever going to live in it, I cannot go to St. George. I'm going to have to go a little bit down the railway. But, uh, you know, what are, when, when you think about the Bronx and you think about uh, getting outside of Brooklyn, what, what, is, what are some of the first things that pop into your head? Uh, highly underrated. Uh, people just don't know enough about the upper tip of Manhattan and Bronx. Uh, beautiful place to explore. It really is. And, you know, I, I make numerous trips up to Boston every season. And the rock formations in Central Park, uh, you can essentially follow up all through New England, you know, a literal geology lesson. So all the rock formations in Central Park and throughout Bronx, they continue northward and northeastward up, uh, up the, uh, the New England coast. And you can follow that same rock formation all the way up through Maine. Uh, but uh, I, I, I like to think, and I always hold out hope, uh, and the history of the city is that it always works in cycles. And I'm hoping that sooner than later, uh, people will rediscover those portions of the city. And thinking about the Throg Snack, that is especially a unique part of the Bronx uh, with, with its uh, location to the, uh, the water. It's just, it is a very, very gorgeous section of that area, of the entire city that a lot of people don't necessarily get over to. Uh, you know, maybe you're crossing over it with uh, the convenience of, of taking the Throg Snack, you know, coming in from Long Island, getting to the, the Cross Bronx. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of people stop and, and or can't stop because you've got to keep moving, but look over to see that the, the crazy view of the skyline from both bridges. Um, but if you can talk a little bit more about the Throg's Neck and some of your memories from over there before you did move to Westchester County. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, Throg's Neck was, I mean, back in the – of the beginning of the 20th century, that that section of the Bronx was was still unsettled, and it was it was mostly farmland. So the there was there was small there was a very small coastal sections of that area that the Manhattanites would go up and and summer. That would be their summer vacation up to the country. I know it's hard to believe, but that's uh, the history of that area. Um, you know, naturally, where the the, the very south. Um, the south 
west section of the Bronx was, you know, obviously uh, where the foot of the Triborough Bridge is. That was all settled early and, and, and built up early. But that in the Throgsnack section, that was not really settled until probably in the uh, probably uh, during the Depression area, post-Depression, where they started uh, – you know, clearing that land and, and the farmland was bought out by, by the city and they started creating um, the grid sections for residential areas. So uh, compared to, you know, like what Mike was saying, you know, parts of Manhattan, going up to Manhattan, the, that that section of the Bronx is still, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, new compared to the other areas, the other areas of, of the city that had been settled, you know, so much earlier. So uh, being that my both my... Both my parents are, are, well, my mother was born and, and raised in that set. My grandparents, on my, on my mother's side, my my lineage goes back to the early 20th century as far as being settled in that section, the, the Pelham Bay Park. Uh, my great-grandparents had a house there that they lived in since 1925, uh, and the, the, the house was in the family until like probably like 1991. So, but... Uh, but that area, and you know, it was it was a great area to grow up at the time. It was you know it was diverse, but you know, blue collar working class families uh, that 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 lived there, and the uh, you know the the easy access, like you said, you could see the city from the bridges. You know, it was a, a short trip to Manhattan. Uh, the schools, you know, at the, at the time, you know, the public schools there were, you know, were very good. You know, I made a lot of good friends there. You know, participated in, in a lot of sports. Uh, you know, baseball was the you know the one thing that that I was you know some semi good at, and uh, but, you know I was I was always uh, I, I played you know I tried my hand at other sports, but baseball is the one that I that I that I stuck at. And you know it, it, it's hard for me not to also uh, the 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 name the Bronx and uh, Mike of course a lot of people don't know that it's directly referring to the majority owners of that land, uh, the Bronx family. Um, and can you imagine today if, if it were like how, how I, I just can't even envision, uh, I guess it would be spelled CKS if they hadn't decided <laughs> to just shorten it. Uh, and, and there's something about the X that makes it just a little bit more New York City feel than if, if we were seeing the CKS. I don't know. And, and, it, and it's also fascinating to me whenever I'm traveling upstate, there's so many different Bronx farms and Bronx pieces of land that I still haven't explored enough of in terms of both the actual piece of land, but there's a lot of museums attached to this as well. Uh, wherever you want to go from there uh, regarding the Bronx family. <laughs> well, the Bronx family, well, you know, uh, obviously New York City, we get our, our history from the Dutch and the English, and a lot of those names are, you know, enmeshed in in our daily vocabulary. And some people say the Bronx, and some people just say Bronx. It, it just depends. Uh, but we'd be remiss. We gathered here this evening to talk baseball in the local area in, in a wide range, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how Bronx is enmeshed in baseball history as deeply as Brooklyn and Manhattan. You know, back in the 1860s, uh, the Morrisonia unions 
were a prominent team and they won a championship and they were from the Bronx. And there's a rich, rich, I mean, rich Negro League history that emanates out of the Bronx as well. As a matter of fact, you know, people might be aware uh, or not aware, but uh, I'm sure that people who are familiar with the Bronx, where the Park Chester houses are now, before those buildings were erected, that huh. used to be the Catholic uh, Protectory, where the New York Lincoln Giants used to play, amongst other teams. Wow. So many fabulous games took place on those grounds in the Bronx, where the Park Chester houses are right now. Well, I had no idea 15, about that, Mike. 15, uh, 1555 Unionport Road, that was the spot that uh, checked the Bronx off my list. Uh, from, a, I think, 2006 to 2008, uh, we living there with my, my late dad. Um, and, uh, uh, Rob, where, go ahead, uh, since I cut you off. No, that's all good, and, and it's it's great that I know we'll talk about baseball, but, I mean, Mike, you're, you're dragging me down the rabbit hole here with the local history because I could, <laughs> I, I could go, and, and you're on point with everything, with, with, with everything, especially with the Manhattan, the lay of the land of Manhattan and the – you know, the glacial recession and what causes, you know, the Palisades and the glacial erratics. Uh, we, we could go into a whole go. different geology class here, so I digress. Um, oh. But the, the interesting about Parkchester is that <laughs> uh, it, with my job, I was in Parkchester the other night uh, spending half the night over there. So, um, But with Parkchester, the interesting thing is that my late grandmother, who was born and bred in the Pelham Bay section, who she, she was basically born – uh, right outside the the last stop of the six train in Pelham Bay Park, right on Parkview Avenue there. So she she was pretty well versed in w- w- with the layout of the city and and some of the things I got out of her towards the end of her life where she mentioned Parkchester and I believe Mike correct me if I'm wrong the Parkchester was built during the uh, the the Great Depression. Uh, because I or, or towards the end of it, because it is filled with a lot of Art Deco architecture there. So uh, basically, my grandmother said that if you if you got an apartment in Parchester, you, you had it made. Like you hit the top. There was no there was no, you couldn't get anything better than that uh, because of where it was located, and you know the amount of commerce that was in there. Uh, the the commercial the you know the the commercial stores that were there. There was really no you know, at that time, uh, you know, you, you had to travel far to, you know, get everything you needed, and everything in Parkchester was just basically right there. So, but uh, but it's interesting because yeah. now you know, it's gone through its phases where, it, you know, it it turned into a kind of an urban blight for a little bit, but it seems like it's, it's trying to recapture some of its uh, former glory. So, uh, but, yeah, it's interesting how, you know, even as a kid I would go through that metropolitan uh the uh, the big fountain there uh, for when my mother would go shopping at the old Macy's Mall there yeah. off uh, Metropolitan Avenue, and uh, I would have to see that. I remember I would drag my mother. I got to go see the fountain. I have to see that fountain so I could see looking back how that was just once a you know just a fantastic neighborhood. So, uh, and I think that like generally speaking, the super blocks that became kind of a, a big part of post-war uh, America, especially like thinking about Stuyvesant and how tied to, to uh, veterans it was. Um, I think Parkchester is probably a better rendition than Stuyvesant, let's say. Um, and one of the things I also remember, like you're talking about, Rob, all the shops 
they were basically there there were these these little mini blocks on the inside of the main road um and and something that and now I'm about to go down a complete Bronx tangent which is uh, appropriate but before we get into uh some of your memories of about your your relatives talking about polygrams and Ebbets Field one of the things I remember discovering about the Bronx when I was first there was how big the pizza slices are and also how affordable they were compared to other sections of New York City. And, you, you know, something about there's something about the Bronx slice that make, might, uh, might make it the most unsung slice, the, the sleeper slice of New York City. <laughs> Well, what are you, like, Rob? About? What are you, what is your opinion about that? <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know what pizzerias you talk about. Well, there's only two pizzerias I tried in Parkchester. One was uh, adjacent to the, which is still there, uh, movie theater. I think it's, uh, I think the name, of, if it correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, it might be called Yankee Mall at the time. I guess it was connected, or that might have been on the other side where Macy's is. But there was a, a big movie theater. Well, I think it was like a single theater. Um, movie house, and right next to it was a pizzeria, which still might be there, I'm not sure, but I remember going there as a kid, and and, yeah. and through my teen years, the, the slices were, were, were tremendous there, and there was another pizzeria at the northern tip of Unionport Road in East Tremont, so the northern end of Parkchester, where that entire block has been since raised. There's, there's just nothing mm-hmm. there, and I forget the name of the pizzeria where the, the slices were were just tremendous there also. Uh, but um, and I and the the slice that you're talking about adjacent to the movie theater, I think is exactly the one that I I, I can't remember trying any other slice, but that place was along the my route um, from the you know walking to Unionport Road from uh, Hugh Grant Circle, which is where the Parkchester subway stop is. And um, I, another little tidbit of it is uh, about that movie theater. I'm pretty sure that was the first place I ever saw The Departed, Martin Scorsese's uh, masterpiece. Um, oh. and, and, Mike, uh, uh, Pizza of the Bronx, what, what's your take? Well, I, I will say this, that if you go to a pizzeria, you will get a bigger slice than the one that's delivered to your home. And that's because the pizza has to fit in a box. If you go there, you get the house slice, which is bigger. And maybe that's what you're talking about. Maybe they make it that yeah. much more bigger. Uh, but that's the gist of, of pizza, you know. Uh, but <laughs> for the hell of it, you know, uh, go, getting back to baseball, I, I would also like to throw out there that, uh, again, the Bronx was such a hotbed of semi-pro baseball as well. And the Cedars played up there at Bronx Oval, and that was over by 163rd Street and Southern Boulevard, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Northern Manhattan, uh, the Murray Hills played up there. There were so many locations. Jasper Oval was at 137th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, So, you know, Northern Manhattan and Bronx, hotbeds, hotbeds in Negro League Baseball Mm. and semi-pro baseball. Yeah, and that's, you know, you've done such a great job uncovering that history that has, has in many ways been lost. I mean, you know, I, I as I've been going through some of my uh, Brooklyn Eagle 
uh, of the era. I, you know, they had just as much coverage uh, as, as as on the Dodgers. The, you know, especially in the year that I'm currently uh, doing, 1938. Um, I'm trying to think of the name that keeps coming up that like left the Dodgers in the middle of the season and started playing for the Bushwicks. And I'm going to have to go down the rabbit hole. Um, but Rob, do you have any knowledge of uh, what, what's where do you begin regarding your knowledge of both Negro League history and semi-pro if any? Well, uh, I'll probably, hopefully, I'll, I'll impress Mike with this one. But um, my, my connection to Major League Baseball is uh, my grandfather on my mother's side. His his first cousin, older cousin, his name his name was Tom Furyk, and. His, uh, you know, our little claim to fame with him is that he pitched in relief and won Game Three of the 1950 World Series with the Yankees against the old uh, Whiz Kids, Philadelphia Phillies. Um, so, if, if you look at the direct correlation, I had to look it up. He would be my second cousin twice removed. So, uh, but getting to the semi, he, he basically he was signed by the Giants. Uh, he was born in New York. Um, and was signed by the Giants as a farmhand, but was was soon released. So uh, the interesting fact is that you brought up the semi-pro. He wound up pitching for the old uh, Brooklyn Bushwicks and played in a park named Dexter Park, which is, you know, since long gone. And, I, and I'm sure, Mike, if not you, Sam, probably know the history of that. Um, there is a historical sign where it is. It's really located, I think, it's in Queens, technically, in Woodhaven. So, uh the, uh, he spent the year there pitching until he was um, picked up by uh, – he caught the eye of Connie Mack. So if you look up his Wikipedia page, this will all be listed there. So Connie Mack signed him, and he pitched with the old Philadelphia A's for a year. And uh, and then after that, he kind of – you know, he bounced between, like, some really bad teams, like the old St. Louis Browns and the Washington Senators. And then, uh, you know, World War II came. And he did his stint in the Navy for a few years. So uh, upon returning from the service, I think he pitched for one year with the Indians, and then he went to the Browns until uh, it was a deadline trade at the uh, in, in 1950 season where he was acquired. And I believe he had a he, he had an excellent run from the deadline right up until. Uh, I mean, naturally, there was no playoffs there. You won your division, went straight to the World Series. But I think he had an exceptional record. I don't know the numbers. And uh, I think in old articles, you, you see Casey Stengel praising him like he was, you know, one of the guys that, you know, single-handedly got the Yankees to the, you know, to the postseason that year. So he pitched, I think, the one inning in relief in Game 3, and he was credited with the win. So that was, you know, as my grandfather would tell me, that was just, like, really such a huge thing back in the day, you know, hometown kid that made it big with the local club. And, uh, you know, he was, um, you know, he was only there for a short cup of coffee because he pitched into the 51 season. And I think um, he wasn't really doing too well. And he, and he was subsequently traded. And I'm trying to think where he went. But, you know, he had a nine, he had a, he had a pretty good career, you know, nine-year career. But, the you know, the you know, the, the climax of the career was that, that winning game three of the 50 World Series. So it's nice to see, you know, my mother's maiden name posted in there, uh, old Irish name, Ferrick, with two E's. So, and then, uh, you know, after that, I think he, 
he was released and he immediately went into to coaching. Uh, he coached for he was a pitching coach for several teams. I think uh, the uh, Detroit Tigers. Uh, I think uh, the old at the time the Cincinnati, you know Cincinnati Redlegs. Uh, and then when he when he retired, he was one of the uh, top scouts for the newly Kansas City franchise, the Royals. So he was basically with the mm. Royals from 69 until 1989-90. So, uh, you know, that's where he pretty much did the rest of his uh, working career as uh, one of the primary pitching scouts for the Kansas City Royals. So, But if you look him up, you know, that's a little family claim to fame as far as uh, – you know, with baseball, and it was nice that it was with, uh, you know, the local club where, you know, with that 50 team, he played with some, you know, obviously, you know, I think, uh, I believe that was, uh, I think DiMaggio's last year was 51, so he played with DiMaggio, you know, obviously Yogi Berra, um, you know, all those, all those, uh, you know, great Yankees at the time. Can you re- a, uh, repeat the name one more time? Mr. Uh, I'm sorry? Sorry about that. Can you repeat the name? Oh, Tom Ferrick. So it's F E E R I C K. And uh he was born in New York. Uh he lived he uh I think after he retired his primary residence was in Pennsylvania, like right outside Philadelphia. So uh I I was supposed to meet him one time uh back in late 1988, but uh I had a the the weekend where he was doing a show locally in New York. So my, I was supposed to meet him, but at that time in November of '88, I had a uh, someone, you know, I had a family member that passed away, so I, I wasn't able to meet him. That was the only chance at the time. So, and I think, uh, so he was. It was nice enough. My my cousin gave me a, you know, an autographed picture of him, and he signed it to me personally. So, and uh, you know, unfortunately, he he passed away in '90. I think October of 96, so I never really got to meet him. But, you know, at that time I was a little bit younger, and, you know, I think he was in Lima, Pennsylvania. That was, you know, that might as well have been, yeah. you know, California at the time. So, but, uh, yes, that's uh, <laughs> the family claim to fame, uh, Mr. Tom Furyk. Uh, go that's ahead. Great. That's a great uh, history. Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say that's a great history, especially uh, – more locally with the with the Bushwicks and whatnot. That's fantastic. I was glad to hear that. I still got a smile on my face from here to here. Yeah, but the deck, you know, as I look it up, it gave me another, you know, avenue. I'm like, wait, Dexter Park, where's that? And the more I read about it, it's like, oh, it's, a, you know, it, I think it's basically, uh, it's on a block with private homes and a, a supermarket. But it does have, you know, as Mike, you probably know, you know, it had a handful of really famous you know, well-known major league players that had barnstormed there. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. uh, plenty of Negro Negro league players that that went through there. So, uh, you know, it's nice that I have some kind of connection with you know that old part. You know, of you know, obviously he was you know old New York Giants farmhand, which was nice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, bounced around with a whole bunch of you know different defunct teams as you know St. Louis Browns. You know, the original Washington Senators and. Uh, you know, and to see, you know, obviously it's, it's nice to have that, you know, the name connected and, you know, as an official winning pitcher for Game 3 of the 1950 World Series. So it, it's kind of funny when every time we look at it, we say, oh, there it is, W. Furyk. Without a oh, doubt, and you're a Yankee it's fan. fantastic. Without exactly. a doubt, and you're a Yankee fan, and Phil Rizzuto played for the Bushwick, Stengel played semi-pro. 
and uh, Wade Hoyt, Brooklyn born. You know, so, uh, you know, he was on the same field as a lot of people, as you mentioned. Yeah, looking it up, uh, you know, that's where the Internet is good, where it's just so easily, you know, easy to, you know, uh, obtain, you know, this, you know, endless information, which is so interesting, because when I first found out about, you know, this, you know, relation, my father, my grandfather told me, I think it was, you know, I was, I was still a teenager, so it had to have been the mid-80s, and, you know, at that time, you know, the, you know, Mattingly was my guy, you know, the Yankees were, you know, so close to, you know, getting there and just, just missing it at the end of the season for several years there, and to have that connection, it was, it was really exciting. It was, it was nice to know. So everything that I had to find out was through, you know, I had to look up, you know, old books, newspapers, any clippings that my grandparents had from him. So, you know, and, and, you know, in the upcoming years with the advent of the Internet, it was just so much easier to, you know, to look up this information and, you know, old articles. And, you know, one of my other cousins, he was like, hey, look what I found in this, you know, old Philadelphia Inquirer. You know, it was like an obit from when he passed away. Um, you know, old clippings from the the, the New York Mirror, uh, you know, long gone, you know, New York um, newspaper. And the old Daily News uh, articles on his pitching performance during that, that stretch run. Towards the, uh, in the at the end of the 1950 season. You are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Our guest tonight is Bronx native Rob Lopez, and we are having a fantastic tri-state chatter, uh, baseball and beyond. And uh, before we get into what our uh, bread and butter is, the Dodgers and the Giants on this podcast, Brooklyn and uh, parts of Upper Manhattan, of course. Um, I'd like you to delve a little deep into your Yankee fandom a little bit more, as well as discovering the history and, and what, you know, what, what are some of your favorite eras? Uh, um, obviously, you know, for the Dodger fan, it, it was just every year, those damn Yankees, why can't we beat them? <laughs> So, uh, you know, wherever you want to go a little bit more into the Yankees. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I mean, just to touch on the the, the Brooklyn Dodger part before I get on the Yankee, um, my Yankee part, um, I, I was working a project. I had always been fascinated that, you know, when I was told that the Dodgers were originally from Brooklyn, I just could not understand it to me. I always saw them as, you know, L.A., you know, the, you know, the symbol on the hat, Los Angeles. How, how are they ever from New York? I never understood at that time as a kid the concept of how they went from they were originally here. I, I just couldn't grasp it. So, um, so I think it was – it must have been the summer of either 1990 or 91, and I was working a construction project at the uh, Brooklyn Museum at the very top of Prospect Park. So, you know, at the time, I'm like, you know, uh, you know, this has got to be close to where Ebbets Field is. And I, you know, I whipped out the old Hagstrom map in, in my father's van. And uh, one day after work, I, t- I convinced him, I said, you know, do me a favor. Can you just drive down these couple of blocks? And I said, I just want to see where old Ebbets Field is. He goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. So we we go across... I guess what is Eastern Parkway, leaving the, I want to say, I guess it's the Washington Avenue entrance where we were. So we go across and we go down Bedford Avenue, and he stops the van, and he goes, there it is. And I go, where's why? He goes, 
this is where Ebbets Field was. And I look to my right, and I see this like incredible, imposing, you know, building. And I, from that moment, I'll never forget. It just it it just put the hooks in me. I just could not, you know. Obviously, being born twelve years after it was knocked down, I I, I could not. I couldn't. I wasn't having. It. I was like, "There's no way that there was, you know, a baseball stadium where this where this block is," and I just could not grasp it. I couldn't understand it. And he goes, "Well, you know, if you get out, you know, there's a cornerstone right there, and it'll show you, you know." He goes, "I think it's the only thing that tells you what was once there." So, I get out on the corner of Bedford and I guess it's Sullivan, Mike, right? Uh, Bedford and Sullivan, and I I <laughs> go to. The cornerstone, and there it is. And and I remember feeling, it wasn't even like I was happy. I thought it was so sad that I'm like, there's a cornerstone with a baseball on it. And it just says, um, I, I think it said 1962, and it says, this is the former site of Ebbets Field. And to me, it felt more like of a gravestone than a cornerstone of a building. Like, I looked there, and I just could not believe that this is where you know all the you know all the stories i heard all these famous brooklyn dodgers like there was a stadium on this block so i made him drive around i think 3 4 times before he was just like that's it it's enough we you know we had to drive back to the bronx and i just couldn't grasp of like i don't get it how is the field on this block because if you look at Ebbets field it was it was built on an incline you know between Right. Sullivan and Montgomery was like, I mean, my God, it had to be like a 20-angle, 20 20-degree 20 pitch going up the block. And I'm like, I just, I, I couldn't understand it at that time being like 19, 20 years old. You know, how is there a, a, a professional baseball stadium here? He goes, well, you know, he told me that he had never been there. He had been to the polo grounds, but um, he had his, um, his uh, like his cousins are all from like Pitkin Avenue and uh, the area surrounding that stadium and and they just told, he just told me that like listen it was just there was a baseball stadium here this neighborhood was once a thriving you know exciting place to be and you know it's just you know if you go into you know the history of the area you know he tried to explain to me which I didn't understand you know the I guess the, the white flight of the mid 50s everybody bailing out to what's that complex out in um, uh, Levittown you know they built Levittown, Levittown. you know they they were expanding into you know, uh, 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 Suffolk County is being being built up, and that's where the mm-hmm. Brooklyn uh, contingent of my father's side of the family they moved out to Babylon, off the uh, Southern State Parkway. So they left there. You know, I mean, they hung out a little bit longer, but that's where they all they, they wound up relocating to. So, you know, the fascination of like I don't get this thirty thirty story building is here, and there was a baseball stadium. I just could, I couldn't grasp it. So. At that time, I, I became obsessed with it, and, you know, you know, getting books on it, reading articles on what was once there, and you know, and then eventually getting into more applied reading. As far as like, okay, uh, the reasons why, what happened, the whole O'Malley and um, Robert Moses or, ordeal, I became obsessed with it, and on like, you know, how could something like this happen? You know, like a, a team moving from, you know, from point A to point B when you had probably the. You know, one of the at the time, you know, Brooklyn was alone. One of the it could be its own city, one of the biggest cities in the country. You yeah. know, losing its baseball team. So, you know, from years on there, I, I was just obsessed with reading different books and and articles on you know <laughs> how everything went. I appreciate you starting there uh, uh, because 
it, it also reminds me of one of the books that I read, one of the guests we've had, Bob McGee, uh, who wrote The Greatest Ballpark Ever. His introductor, either his first chapter or his introductory chapter, he talks about taking a trip in 19, I believe it was 72, just uh, still living in Brooklyn and just wanting to search for that lost history. And he, and it must have been what so many people did, exactly what you did, which is just drive around the block a few times trying to imagine it. And I still can't imagine it, especially when you're like standing on the playground, if you end up going up into the complex and seeing the sign that says no ball playing, which is such the irony of it all. Luckily, the cornerstone that you're talking about, the gravestone, has been exposed uh, recently after a bush was covering half of it. Um, I know that there's plenty of people in that neighborhood that still don't know that a ballpark used to be there. Um, And so I, I love hearing your story and also the way you got obsessed with it. And I'm also reading in John G. Zinn's Charles Ebbett's book right now about how that land was had to be flattened completely and how excavating the entire thing because of that slope was so difficult, uh, especially considering they wanted to start in January and February and the weather that year in 1912 was so excruciating. They couldn't do any work in January and February contrasting with, I believe it was Shy Park that was able to get theirs done uh, within January and February. But Mike, wherever you want to go, I know you've been, on that place, you know, been on that building plenty of times. Uh, many times. And there's treasures to be found. You just got to look, you just got to look around. Uh, it's not that easy, but you just got to look around. There's the home plate off of Sullivan Street, or Sullivan Place, I should say. So the brass home plate is there. <clears throat> and you just have to go into the parking lot, and, you know, if you got the coordinates right, you'll see it. And it's easier to envision where that right field fence was. Uh, right across the street from Bedford Avenue, across the street from the apartment buildings, in the bank, uh, there's a large blow-up of uh, the photo, the, one of the famous photos of Jackie Robinson walking uh, away from Ebbets Field, uh, on the sidewalk, and that photo is blown up. It takes up the entire wall in the bank right across the street, and uh, right next door is Rite Aid, and on the side of their building, they have two murals, one of Ebbets Field and another of Jackie Robinson. Now, on Sullivan Place, between Rogers and Nostrand Avenue, is a place called Dodgers Playground that not many people even realize it exists. And it's just that, a playground, a New York City playground. However, the main gate, uh, I, I will just call these people artists. Whoever welded the front gate made it resemble the facade of Ebbets Field. Uh and that's the main gate. They close it after hours, and it comes together, and you could see it in its uh, metal welded form. It's actually very beautiful. Inside the park itself, in the concrete, 
uh, is uh, what you might call a, a sundial or a compass. And it, uh, around the perimeter, they list all the Dodgers National League championships. And, of course, in the center is 1955 World Champions. And it's also ringed by many of the most famous names from the Brooklyn Dodgers. And it's right there in the New York City playground. And uh, they have a, uh, a statue of a catcher and a little, uh, a little diamond in the corner of the playground. Uh, I, I am not saying that they tried to replicate something uh, for Roy Campanella. Uh, the dimensions just don't, you know, equal up. But uh, it's a little diamond, and around the infield, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I forgot exactly what it is, but they have uh, the metal lettering embedded into the concrete. Uh, and I believe something to the effect of the Brooklyn Dodgers, something like that, but it letters the infield. And then on the side, uh, on another wall, uh, one of the apartment buildings that adjoins the park itself, there's a, a graffiti mural of Jack Robinson himself. So uh, there's other murals, the post office. There's two post offices that have murals of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So, you know, there's things that can be found. You just got to look around, and a lot of times you have to take pictures for posterity's sake. For instance, over at the intersection of Empire, where, where Flatbush Empire and, and Bedford come together, that's an MTA lot. Uh, there's a train station right there. Uh, well, that lot, uh, one of the employees, he had painted a mural of Ebbets Field. And the boys are 51, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and it, was, it went unfinished for a while. And I, I, something happened to the employee. He either retired, moved, whatever the case may have been. And uh, they painted over it. They attempted a second mural uh, done by somebody else, another employee, and they were getting around, and they were doing different things, and that mural also got painted over. And I think uh, the MTA has since relinquished that yard and that space, uh, which is a shame. Uh, it was a beautiful mural of Ebbets Field and them holding up their uh, National League pennant. And, uh, you know, like I say, if you look around, things can still be found, uh, but it's not easy. But that park on Sullivan Place, Dodger Playground, for those of you in Brooklyn or plan to visit Brooklyn or traveling through Brooklyn, it's it's worth checking it out uh, because it's rare and nobody knows it's there. You know, just thinking about the Cratter Corporation who uh, built that apartment building, you know, of course you can't just blame them for this considering that it wasn't the thought process when it came to architecture at the time, uh, you know, incorporating old architecture for your new plan. Um, but it feels as if it would have been rather simple, I say this without any expertise, uh, to have included the facade at least within, at least even if you don't necessarily uh, incorporate it completely into the design of the 
uh, the apartment building, the way they have thought about it uh, with the retro uh, uh, kick from 90s onward, um, you could have at least maybe figured out how to keep it up uh, as, 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 you know, like maybe a little courtyard in between before the building happens. And it's just such a shame that no piece of that other than whatever anybody personally was able to collect from the brick at the site. Um, it, it's just, it's so sad that that's the case. And I, I also have to say that I do believe there was a, a sign from the heavens, however, uh, uh, passing me by at this Walmart in Linden, New Jersey, the parking lot in Linden, New Jersey. Somebody walked by uh, with a giant interlocking NY of the Yankees' nature, uh, printed on their T-shirt, and it reminded me of what – and here's how I will, I will uh, transition for you, Rob. Uh, it reminded me of the Yankees in Brooklyn and some of the tales that Mickey Mantle would, uh, would tell about getting pelted with fruit as the bus would come in. So wherever you want to go from there regarding the Yankees in Brooklyn. Well, I just want to, I, I, before I forget, I want to thank Mike for that little, nice little discovery because uh, I, I looked on my phone and I, I, I went to the, you know, Rogers and Sullivan Place and I see exactly what he's talking about with Dodger Playground uh, and the main entrance, that metal gate, which is in the shape of the, I guess, the front entrance of, of Ebbets Field, which was, you know, Sullivan mm. and Montgomery. That and of course, you know the the right side of the gate is open, so it, very tastefully done. Very, looks very nice. That's a nice. I had no idea about that, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, seeing what that what that park looks like now from above, I see what you're talking about as far as the the wording and what is the small baseball diamond in there. I just can't make out what it says, but uh, you know from time to time I am in downtown Brooklyn, so if, uh, I will try to check that out. Uh, one of these days. So thank you for thank you for pointing that out. I had no idea that existed. <laughs> You're welcome. So, but uh, getting back to uh, with the Yankees now, and I know we were talking about the a little bit, you know, with the Dodgers and everything. But uh, and and Mike, you were talking about Upper Manhattan. There's a bunch of times where, you know, where I was at the site of the former Polo Grounds, where there's uh, a little bit of history for, uh, of me going there because I used to. Before they refurbished the the uh, the, uh, the John T. Brush stairway, I actually used to go up and down those stairs to check it out, which was a, a complete health hazard. It was just I don't know how it didn't fall through the treads, but uh, they did a really an excellent job with restoring that uh, that stairway and keeping the original uh, metal lettering that was embedded in the old concrete. So Sam, I don't know if you Mike, if you had ever been there, that is certainly worth a trip up there to Edgecombe Avenue and uh, going down those stairs. Uh, indeed, I did go there, and you're absolutely right, and they did a wonderful job. Uh, I have another little bit of restoration, Sam, now that you bring it up. Uh, one point, I, I have to blame it on New York City itself. They're the ones who do a piss-poor job of preserving their history. Uh, they could have, you know, uh, preserved a chunk of the polo grounds. They could have preserved a chunk of the uh, of Ebbets Field, and most recently, they had a ch- Rob. Uh, tell me, they had a ch- they had a chance to preserve Gate Two 
from Yankee Stadium, and they failed to do that. So, Sam, I, I have to blame the city uh, for not, you know, uh, exerting some kind of protectionism against or, or for its history in these old ballparks. Yeah. However, uh, second point, very quickly, Hilltop Park, where Columbia Presbyterian presently uh, is, that's where Hilltop Park used to be. Right across from the hospital, they were renovating uh, a plaza. And years ago, the Yankees had dedicated a home plate to the hospital. You know, here was a home plate, Hilltop Park, donated by the New York Yankees, Columbia Presbyterian, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened? They were renovating that plaza, and they removed the home plate. And for years, uh, they had not replaced it. They had not put it back. And I went there at least twice and talked to security, and, and is it there? No, they never put it back. Is it there? No, they never put it back. So uh, I believe it was last month I was up there, went by, and sure enough, thank goodness, the home plate for Hilltop <laughs> Park has been restored. So that's good news for Yankee fans, I guess. And, yeah, they need to uh, – any Yankee fan out there who does happen to listen to this, uh, and any baseball fan for that matter, by all means, uh, around 168th off of Broadway, I forget exactly. What, what is that – what is the, uh, the exact avenue that it's on, Mike? Mike? Yes, yeah, Sam, I'm I sorry. think it's, it's off uh, Broadway, and I believe – it could be uh, Wadsworth, Wadsworth Avenue. Uh, as well, yes. But 168th and Broadway, and you'll be there. You'll see the hospital, and right across okay. the street is that little uh, plaza, and that's where the home plate is. And again, you know, we talk, we we mentioned on here how underrated and underexplored that entire area of Manhattan is. So anybody who is visiting New York City, uh, listening to this podcast. Um, not only go check that out, but you have to go over to City College as well as the surrounding area, Hamilton Heights. It's some of the, the best-looking uh, uh, architecture you're ever going to see, both on campus as well as the, the, the neighborhood around there. Uh, there's also Alexander Hamilton's old uh, grange uh, that has been uh, preserved by, I believe it is a national park actually up there. Um, so... There, there's so many different things to explore, both baseball and otherwise, regarding the, the, the history of this uh, country and city. So please, by all means, check that out. Um, I, you know, I, you guys are so good with the, the cues right now that I, I want to just keep that up. But I, I, I am curious, Rob, I, I – a few weeks ago, Peter Golenbach, who wrote the book Bums, an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers, also talked about Mickey Mantle. And it, it's, you know, that's what it was back in the 50s. It was Willie Mickey and the Duke. That was the big argument uh, amongst baseball fans as to who the best center fielder in New York City was. Um, and so I'm wondering your Mickey Mantle's place within your fandom, uh, both in terms of your Yankee fandom, but just generally exploring baseball history. Well, I mean, all three, obviously, all, all three of those players were 
retired. I mean, I think the one that lasted the longest was was Mays. He retired, you know, the, when I was barely one years old, and you know, it was his last hurrah with the Mets. But looking back at their stats and everything that, you know, over the their careers, they I, I think the they each had their individual. I think uh, I think Snyder had the most home runs out of any player in that whole decade from fifty to from fifty to sixty. Um, Mantle, obviously MVP, uh, triple crown winner, and 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 Mays, who was just uh, you know an incredible player himself. And you know, I mean, I think uh, I, I'm not sure. Did he lose one or two years to the military with the army? So if you, you well, know, Mays, like, yeah, 52 and 53, I believe, in terms of Willie Mays, yes. Yeah, so I mean, he's my, that's like minus two years. Uh, you know, just think, you know, at the age he was, what you know, like two years of, you know, Willie Mays in the early fifties would have done. So, to me, um, you know, being a Yankee fan, uh, but you know, not uh, you know, obviously seeing any of the, any of those guys play, to me, it's just it, it's a no brainer. All three great hitters, all three Hall of Famers, but you know, Mays to me is you know, looking at his resume. Uh, over the course of his career, what he brought to the table as far as, uh, you know, like his hitting. You know, Mantle was a fantastic hitter, too, uh, fielder, too. Um, but it just seemed Mays, Mays was just incredible as far as his speed uh, and, you know, everything he brought to the table as a, a, as a complete player. And, you know, obviously his longevity where, you know, Mantle had, you know, obviously the injury issues. Uh, Snyder had a, a shorter span of his, you know, Hall of Fame resume where basically, you know, once they made the move to California, you know, his stats kind of, you know, he had reached his, his peak already and started falling off. So uh, as far as those three, it's a, it's a no-brainer. It's a, to me, it's, it's, it's Willie Mays. And Willie Mays is the greatest. Uh, probably, yeah. you know, give me the top five. Mays is, Mays is right there. You know, you can make your arguments for the yeah. other players, but out of those three, to me, it's Willie Mays. And when you're talking about losing two years to the service and considering he was able to collect 660 home runs, of course, hitting his last one with the New York Mets, um, Mike, I think, you know, talking about considering those two years, uh, uh, just hypothetically speaking, there's a very solid chance that he would have broken or at least, you know, been up there with Hank Aaron uh, at 715. Not only that, but uh, Candlestick Park was just a terrible place to hit. So he had that going against him as well. Uh, You know, we talked about it yesterday on the other podcast about how baseball is different from the other sports where the dimensions can vary from, you know, uh, city to city, park to park. And the other sports, you know, their dimensions are fixed. So it's, you know, it's one of those what-ifs. But I can't add much more. I, I'm in lockstep with what Rob said. I would put Willie Mays at the top. Uh, Willie Mays uh, was part of my early education in baseball, uh, as told to me by my aunt. Uh, she gave me a complete education about Willie Mays starting in 73. And, uh, yeah, to me, he's a, he's the top. And, uh, you know, that's it, brother. Well, you know, Thinking about what separated Mantle um, from the two of them, not only in terms of the physical ailments, but everything we now learn about uh, 
about Mantle is that other, you know, not just the alcoholism, the, the, the alcoholism was a symptom of a greater mental issue, not necessarily a mental illness, but he really, he would probably now, Rob, uh, uh, he would probably be diagnosed with, with depression. Um, and, and I think there's, that's a big part of, uh, you know, mental health is now a, a something that is, you know, especially when we're talking about the addiction issues that came up in the off season regarding Matt Harvey uh, and his role within the Tyler Skaggs death. Um, that, you know, it's, it's a, it's been a stigma within sports to even admit that you don't believe in yourself and considering what Mantle was able to do, not necessarily having a full grasp on how good he was. It's tragic. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And some of the reading I, I'd done on Mantle, especially when, when, you know, after he passed it, it's amazing with the amount of, of self-doubt that he admitted as, as a player throughout his entire career, even as a, a youth baseball player, where I think uh, that one of those interviews where he said uh, he was really down and out on himself in the minors and he really wasn't doing well. And I think he, you know, he told his dad, I'm not sure if I could do it. And his dad, I think, drove all the way up from Commerce, Oklahoma, and, like, basically snatched him off the field and said, all right, well, now you're going home to work. And he was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, something to the effect of, like, well, I thought I raised a man. And, you know, basically gave him that dose of tough love that he said really set him straight and uh, put him on the right path. But I think that the tragedy with Mantle is that, obviously, I think his – um, guys, correct me if I'm wrong on this again. I, th- I think his his old man was uh, uh, not a farmer, but like some kind of coal miner, and died at a very young age. I think he was only like 37, and that really had an effect on him. And he basically lived this you know carefree lifestyle, as you know everybody saw in later years. You know, very recklessly, where you know, uh, imagine a healthy Mickey Mantle. You know, if he, you know, obviously didn't trip over that. Uh, um, that drain pipe in right field when DiMaggio called him off, and and then his reckless lifestyle, of course, which you know every, we all know about. You know, for years and years, he could have, uh, you know, he could have, you know, there's there's times where I thought like, wow, if Mantle really took care of himself, he could have maybe been the bridge to that mid '70s resurrection of uh, the Yankees. I mean, obviously, I think he uh, he retired in I think '60. His last year was 68. He did spring training of 69 and then called it quits there. So, But if he was a healthy guy, you know, he could have definitely played, you know, where I think Mays, his last year was 73. So he could have maybe, you know, maybe not up to 1976, but he could have got right up there where, you know, he would have played with Munson, Roy White, uh, you know, Sparky Lyle, you know, during the whole, you know, Steinbrenner taking over the, the franchise in 73. You know, he could have been, you know, that, that cornerstone legacy, you know, great player that, you know, led into, uh, you know, the next phase of what was, you know, the, to be the mid-70s. But obviously it wasn't to be. So, but, uh, no, you know, he could have been, yeah. if he, you know, he could have been the greatest of all time to me if he would have taken care of himself because, you know, he said the stolen bases weren't such a big stat back then. He said if he knew, he would have stole 50, 60 bases a year. So, uh <laughs> Mantle, you know what could have, what you know what could have been, should have been. Uh, you know he had the he had the bones to be the greatest of all time, but you know it just didn't work out that way. 
Imagine how many bases he could have stolen with bigger bases, huh? A little tie into modern times. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast, and you could listen to some of that on the Metzian podcast from last night, ladies and gentlemen. A little shameless plug there, Mike. Uh, you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and before we go, I do want to touch upon, Rob, uh, you were talking about your uh, how your elder relatives uh, would discuss the Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds. So what are your, some of your memories regarding that? My, on, my, on my father's side, they had, uh, he had uh, some cousins and relatives that had settled down in the, in the Pitkin Avenue uh, side of, of Brooklyn, and he had a... Um, one of his uh, former uh, business partners um, was also um, had been. To, he would tell me stories about Ebbets Field, and 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 I remember clearly as day he would sit there and vehemently, vehemently shove down my throat on how Ted Williams was the greatest uh, baseball player ever, the best hitter ever. So I tell my guy, what about Joe DiMaggio? He goes, no, no, I kid, you know, you never saw Joe, you, you never saw Joe D, but I saw Pulpin, <laughs> and I saw, uh, I saw Williams, and Williams was the best hitter ever. And this is a guy who used to, he wouldn't say oil, he would say Earl. That, that's how old school this guy was. He was from Astoria, Queens, and, you know, but he was, you know, through and through an old Brooklyn Dodger fan, which he never transferred his loyalty to L.A. when they left. So, but uh, I would hear the stories on how, also, the how vibrant that neighborhood was, and and I really didn't get to understand what he was talking about until the first time I went to Wrigley Field, and I went there in the summer of 1996 on a road trip to Chicago, where I saw the Yankees play out there against the White Sox during that World Series year. So, um, so uh, with the White Sox in town, the, the Cubs were uh, were out of town, and I was able to just simply walk around that neighborhood. I was lucky enough to get inside and walk around. But I looked there, and I'm like, well, you know, if you guys have ever been to uh, you know, Wrigley Field, you walk around, and it's just, you know, a stadium in the middle of a nice residential area where there's no buildings. It's all, you know, small row houses and, you know, small attached multiple dwellings and, and you know, just a fantastic place. And you know, when I the first time I went there, I just remember like, oh my God, this is what this is what Ebbets Field must have been like. So it really, you know, it, it resonated where it kind of like, all right, this is what you know. I'm seeing it with my own eyes. A, a you know, a, a famous stadium. You know, where most of the stadiums I've been to have been, you know are in you know you know like a complex. Like when I used to go to the old Vet in Philadelphia, like that, Kansas City. Um, the old Texas Ranger Stadium in um, in uh, in between um, Dallas and Fort Worth and Arlington, you know Yankee Stadium, kind of like that. You know, it's, it's a stadium in the middle. And and Mike, please don't even get me started with what they did with that Heritage Field, which I thought was <laughs> more, you know it, it could be just done so much better. I mean, I like that, that they put the old freeze in the in the outfield, but they really they struck out so bad with with what. You know, and this and and this could be another podcast, guys. Don't even get me started. I mean, obviously, I grew up in you know with, with Yankee Stadium too. You know, the new stadium, I, I I don't like at all. I understand, you know, open concourses is great. You don't miss the action, but listen, I I spend most of my time looking across the street. You know, disagreeing that they tore that place down. I mean, if they kept Wrigley and Fenway and tastefully upgraded the way they did. You know, 
you know, one of my best buddies, he's from Boston, and, you know, I grew up hating the Red Sox until, you know, I finally was able to, you know, I, I love the game and, you know, realize, you know, what a great franchise and, and ballpark that is. That is by far my favorite ballpark. But what they did with those stadiums, they could have easily done with Yankee Stadium. We're going down to the frame and the architecture of, of you know, the steel and going around it. But, that, like I said, that's a whole nother conversation. Obviously, you know, you want to say that the uh, the, uh, the new stadium was create. You know, you want to say it's progress, but that that is no Yankee Stadium. That you know, and I'm a Yankee fan. It's through a and bland through, recreation me, of history. Absolutely, and you give me any day of the week, I will go to City Field. I love that place. They did a fantastic job with the stadium altogether, the concourses, the architecture. You know, obviously, we know the Wilpons. You know, Fred we went to school with, with Colfax. The main entrance, the rotunda, the Robinson rotunda, they did a fan- – it's not even in the same galaxy as far as the job they did with Yankee Stadium and, and City Field. So, like I said, I, I digress but because uh, I'm going off the topic here. But uh, it's, um, you know, I just uh, – you know, being a Yankee fan, you know, go Mike, you know, like, like you said, that Heritage Field, you know, it's not even – I don't know if you guys know, but from what I'm led to believe, all the reading I did, the – the base path footprint that's there, it's not even exactly what it used to be. From what I'm understanding, not accurate, no. the, the original home plate is where second base is on the new heritage field. <laughs> and for for the life of me, I don't understand why that's not, you know, I read it in an article somewhere that the original Yankee home plate is where the current heritage field second base is. And I'm like, why is that not? Why is that not disclosed on a you know on a higher level? I, don't, I, don't, I just don't get it. Why would you lay the field field out that way? But you know that's there you go. You know the urban planners take over that. So that's a whole other conversation. Right. Uh, just like literally a month to the day, I was uh, walking back in Chicago from going to the gym, and I had to take a little bit of the longer way. Uh, heading north uh, just so I could go take some photos around Wrigley Field. And I I more or less, except for I think one long block, uh, walked the entire thing, around the entire thing. And it it is spectacular. And a friend of the podcast, Mr. Rob Barnes, uh, when I I was – I actually ended up calling him very soon thereafter, realizing that we needed to meet in person because I was in Chicago – um, and the one thing that he said about the job they've done with the renovation is the the screen and the sounds. It's just it, it's just not the same as it was when they just had the organ. And I could see that being the case, but I guess like you just said, that's uh, you know progress, quote unquote. Um, but there, at least they're incorporating some modern intricacies uh, to. The, the generally the renovated, kept historic spot, whereas with Yankee Stadium, like I said, the only thing that I, I don't mind the outside, I really don't, um, but when you get inside, the corridor's nice, but the there's just something very void of that feeling you had, uh, you know, converted Mets fan here, that feeling you had watching a game at the old Yankee Stadium, even... Yankee Stadium to the 70s renovation, that, that, yes, they took away 
they, they, you know, you, you could very much tell that it was born out of that style in the 70s, but they didn't. It just was still such a pleasant place to watch a ball game. And this one, I completely agree with you, Rob, is void of any of that. Yeah, I I absolutely agreed. And, you know, deep down inside, I'm, I'll always be a Yankee fan. You know, I'm not a... You know, I'm not happy with the direction of, you know, how the franchises, you know, conducted themselves or, you know, I'm not even happy with the new age Yankee fans the way they are, but I guess that's a generational gap. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been to plenty of stadiums. I, I got at least half of the stadium scratched off the list, even the old ones that are gone. And, uh, you know, I, you know, maybe because I was, you know, I grew up in the, the, you know, Yankee Stadium 2, as they called it. But I, you know, I, I guess, you know, with, with its age and its lack of, you know, obviously luxury boxes with the new stadiums and, and the corporate dollars that, that it takes in, you know, you, the, the change had to come. But uh, maybe the, the option of being that they built the two stadiums at the same time, where in the mid-'70s the Yankees obviously, you know, uh, shared Shea Stadium for the 74 and 75 seasons, um, I guess that you know that wasn't an option where obviously the Yankees you know obtained that tract of land right across the street on one six one where the where the former public park is. So uh, I mean I, I was excited, you know, when they were building them. They got something new, but I just remember going in there for the first time and I'm, it just did not. It, I'm like I'm like okay, this is I'm not really impressed with it. You know, it's uh, like I said, the and it seems to be commonplace with all the new stadiums with the with the open concourses where, you know, you're standing online and you know you could walk around the whole perimeter of these stadiums and you could see all the action now, which I re- I clearly remember, the first stadium I was able to see that with was the uh, the Philly Stadium, whatever the corporate name of it is. Uh, I, I, that's a great. If you guys have never been there, that's certainly worth a ride and checking out. Great, uh, mm-hmm. I think Citizens Bank Park. Uh, Great. I remember yeah. seeing that. I'm like, oh, it's, it's kind of like that. But that's the only positive. You know, I have no, you know, maybe I have something to do with my age, you know, being married, having a family, not, you know, busy. But, you know, any day of the week, I will go to City Field. I enjoy going there. I love going to that place. Uh, parking's a little bit more ample than the Yankee Stadium area. I have to admit that. It's easy to, you know, get off the Van Wick and go right into that big parking lot and hang out. So, uh but eh, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, and it seems to even, and I have, I've never set foot in that MetLife Stadium in Jersey, which all my football fan, all my football friends, they, they hate that stadium. They wish they had the old Giant Stadium back. So I don't know what it is. Kinda, I don't know, Sam. They kind of, you know, swung and missed on a few of these big projects here. You know, to history, especially yeah, the Yankee and stadium. you know, us, us Met fans. I mean, like I do, yes. City Field is is a great place to watch a ball game, but we had some years uh, there with the Wilpons where we had everything to pick apart. Um, and while it is a, a, it is a pleasant place to watch a ball game, Mike and I could do an entire podcast with the issues we had with the way the Wilpons made that place. But we're not going to go down that tangent. Um, but real quick, some modern news for anybody listening live considering that we don't even know whether, like, you know, in about a month we're hoping that we actually have on other podcasts some real baseball to, uh, to discuss. Um, and the right now MLB and MLBPA 
are uh, heavy in negotiations, and Bob Nightingale, take this with a grain of salt, MLB's written proposal has been submitted to the union. Everything remains fluid as they negotiate deep into the night. Luxury tax, $230 million, that escalates to about 242 Minimum salary, 700000 that escalates to about 770 Pre-arbitration pool, $40 million. So we are waiting with bated breath to see if we can get this thing done and get some baseball by the time we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson making his major league debut. And, Mike, like we talked about last night, and this is, of course, a perfect uh, place to discuss this, it would be a travesty if they're not playing baseball on that day and they're celebrating it like they did with extraneous circumstances in 2020 on a different day. Um, But it really goes to show you, unless, like, this becomes a part of, of what they've been building towards, trying to take one paycheck at least away from the players, uh, which, as we discussed on uh, Mexican podcast last night, would basically be what would happen if they didn't start baseball until April 15th. But just to consider what that represents, the fight for not only baseball, but an entire group of people in this country, uh, it, it's just it's so – uh, jaded to not just get this done with that uh, with that anniversary on its way. Yeah, that would be terrible, Sam. I, I, you know, you said it very well. Can't blame it on the pandemic this time. So hopefully they, you know, reach an agreement. And, and it's just that an agreement. Both sides have to compromise. Both sides have to give a little bit in order to get. So hopefully. You know, you need two parties to reach an agreement. Uh, Maybe this latest proposal gets it done. And as you say, Sam, uh, April 15th, it would be a travesty and so disrespectful, not only to the Robinson family, but baseball's own history and tradition that is far and above and superior to that of the other major leagues. Stop killing yourselves, guys. Precisely. Rob, go ahead. Well, I'm I'm right there with Mike. I mean, being that, you know, Mrs. Robinson's still here with us. I mean, I know she's, I think, somewhere in her mid-90s now, living in Connecticut, but, you know, she still makes the appearances here and there. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm a little bit more, my angle on it, if you, you know, take a step back, is that, you know, in 94, you know, I I was pretty, you know, I was pretty upset with with what happened. But then again, I was a lot younger and more forgiving, where at my age now, you know, I still love the game, even though some of the passion has kind of waned because of the way, you know, the the way the game has been played and, and the changes that I really haven't, really adapted to and maybe I'm a little bit out of touch I'm not in, as in touch as I used to be even though I still keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on but um you know major league baseball doesn't have you know they 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 can't screw this up because they they cannot compete with the NFL they cannot compete with the NBA to risk tossing the season away like this because you know I'll put myself in there I will 
you know, I, you know, I, I think the fans don't realize that they have the ultimate weapon out of any of these negotiations. And if you keep your wallet closed, that that would just speak in volumes. But you know, I understand. You know, you know as well as I do that'll never happen. But like I, I, I say it here and there. I really don't go. I don't do too many posts on on the Twitter, but. You know, if, if fans would just speak with their wallet and keep it closed, that would just send a hell of a message, even if it's for a week, to, you know, you know let, let the, you know, the powers that be, that, you know, like, hey, listen, well, the, it, it, you need us in the end. But, the, you know, as long as baseball has been around for, you know, 150 years, uh, you know, that, that has never happened. The fans are just, you know, that's their source of, uh, you know, entertainment and, and you know, seeing – you know, seeing people play the game that they love. So, and, you know, there's also this day and age where, you know, you have that, that guaranteed corporate dollar that's coming in no matter what. So it's, uh, you know, I wish we could have more of a speaking part with this. But to me, even if, uh, you know, the common fan like us, we, you know, we keep our, our wallets closed, I think that really sends a message because if they, I mean, the season's already compromised and they're playing with fire. So, if they do blow this season like they did back in '94, I think it'll have incredible repercussions on the on the sport itself. They will. It'll take, you know, obviously it was the Maguire Sosa race that, you know, kind of rejuvenated the sport. A couple of years later, mm-hmm. uh, the the advent of the uh, the divisional playoff game of the Yankees Mariners in '95. You know, that first year back, that kind of put a lot of juice back mm-hmm. into the game, and the and the playoff uh, the added playoff format, but today's age and what's especially what's you know the crazy world we're living in they're they're, they're kind of like back burner news in a way especially within life with you know what's going on in the real world so uh i yeah. think they better tread carefully with these negotiations and get it done mike you know something also lost to that uh that that was starting to be the warm-up is that you know fans were a- answering with their wallets or lack thereof um but then a historic moment happened, and that was Cal Ripken Jr. breaking Lou Gehrig's uh, streak of, of consecutive games. Um, before the, the playoffs occurred, before uh, McGuire and Sosa, that occurred. And remind fans of how much we love the game as well as the history of the game. But it's not, like Rob was just saying, this is a different there's different elements around the atmosphere of baseball and there's way too many distractions to be taking us for granted. Uh, You know, we've always recognized baseball to be a self-healing entity just through the beauty of the game in and of itself. Eventually, you know, that would shine through craftsmanship, skill, uh, and, and things of that nature. Uh, I, I think uh, they're on day nice now. They're treading new ground because, excuse me, but craftsmanship and skill have gone out the window. When you can't hit against the ship and go the other way, I'm sorry. When you can't lay down a bunt, I'm sorry. Uh, when you don't know how to hit cutoff men or just don't know how to run the bases and just don't give a damn if you strike out, uh, I'm I'm sorry but skill and craftsmanship are going out the window. These people are in phenomenal shape, better shape than anybody who's walked planet Earth ever before, okay? But their acumen, their skill, and their craftsmanship 
is at an all-time low as far as I'm concerned. So baseball, I don't know, they're going to have a harder time than ever before self-healing. The game is beautiful. The game is great. The game itself will get us back into the flow and get our minds back, you know, on the field. The game will do that. Not necessarily players, certainly not owners, certainly not the commissioner, and certainly not Bud Light commercials on TV. Uh, The game (laughs) ultimately will heal itself, but they need to get on the field. However, you know, as Rob alluded to, some of us are getting up there in age. Uh, And uh, the game that we grew up uh, is considerably different than what's transpiring on the field today. And 30 years from now, people born in 2022 aren't going to see this game the same way either. Uh, it is generational. You have a lot of people involved now. You have baby boomers. You have Gen X. You have millennials. You have Gen Z. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a, a wide... And, and what are they doing at the young level? Uh, little leagues are, at, you know, attendance and participation, I think, are at all-time lows. You know, soccer's taken over the youth programs. Uh, so baseball, they have to really audit themselves and and think and and really uh, look within themselves and and be honest with themselves and saying, are we our worst enemy? Uh, Again, a game can be played within two and a half hours without implementing any of these contrived rules if you just stick to the spirit of the game. See ball, hit ball. Get ball from catcher, prepare, get signed, throw pitch, react, run bases. You know, I'm sure a batter can get to the plate a lot sooner if it wasn't for that shaving cream commercial or that Ford Ram commercial on top of a (laughs) beer commercial. You see, so it's very hypocritical to me. It's very hypocritical to me. And all these rule changes and bigger bases, you know, we're never going to see... Uh, that shortstop or second base and pirouette over second base trying to double up a runner at first. We're not going to see that anymore. Again, base running out the window. So skill and craftsmanship and the artistry of the game are at all-time low. So baseball is going to have a lot harder time getting certain generations back into the loop on the same page. It's going to be hard. It's hard enough as it is. Look, my son is 31. He's a millennial. And baseball completely turned them off because of steroids. Steroids turned him away from the game. He's a Yankee fan, Jeter fan. You know, he's in line with everything else, but baseball isn't at the top of his hierarchy of sports. And it never was because of steroids and that his father if you cut him open baseballs will fall out <laughs> you know and on my mother's side uh, we're, we're pretty we're, we're a baseball family I'll just say that <laughs> you know so I, I, I watched it firsthand 
how baseball just completely alienated millennials because they couldn't watch the playoffs. You know, and that's when they really, really, really started passing off costs to their customers, owners, that is. Mm -hmm. Prior to the 90s, a game was very affordable. I could afford to go to go to a game on my own via my paper route. <laughs> I don't think much else needs to be said. Well, you have been listening to. <laughs> go ahead, Rob. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sam. Mike, I you you hit it out of the park on that one. I agree a hundred percent on everything you said. You know, sometimes I. It's like I'm trying to grasp, but like you know, what is the issue? And you, you hit it right on the head. You know, the the artistry, you know, the the, the way the game is played. Like, uh, like I I I didn't even know about this whole you know the bait enlargement of the base until like this morning. I'm like, wait, what is this? And I looked at it. I'm like, they're increasing the size of this. I'm like, well, well what is this all for? And it, I think it's for the bigger picture where they're, you know, they're trying to prevent. You know, these owners have a lot invested in some of these players, uh, you know, and I think they're doing it for the overall safety. They don't want to see, you know, they don't want to see a guy like Chase Utley, you know, going in hard nose. And, you know, I know this is going to hit home with some of you Met fans, you know, uh, uh, you know, they don't want to see that, especially like, you know, who wants to see, a, you know, a, a, you know, one of their, their top prize prospects that they invested a lot in, you know, uh, get injured on something like that where, you know, listen, that's just part of the game. That's part of the passion and, and what, what what makes the game beautiful. I'm not saying it's got to be, you know, you're not looking out to, to hurt people, but they're also trying to, at the expense of the way the game is played, they're, they're trying to in, uh, protect their investments. You know, there's a you know an all-time high, you know, revenue with the sport coming in. You know, it's it's basically... You know, listen, I, my wife and my two kids, you know, it's to, to go to Yankee Stadium and sit in de- decent seats, you know, I have to take out a small loan. And, uh, I, I mean, that's that's what all sports now. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, with my generation, it's it's certainly, and, you know, and some of my friends, too, we're all in the same wavelength where it's just like, yeah, it's just not the same. The passion's not there. You know, these, these changes, and, and, and Mike, like I said, you hit it out of the park. Like, you know, these are professional hitters. Like, uh, like if you threw that to someone like Ted Williams, like with the shift, he would hit. It, the ball would be in left field all the live long day. You know, it would. Be, he would time. be laughing at that. And there's be right. and and that and he, you know, as a professional hitter, and I'm not one. Listen, I'm pat, I'm not passing judgment, but if you go back, you know, I think even, you know, guys like like Schmidt. Like Schmidt, I think he deplores, you know, the shift. All these old school players, and these are Hall of Fame players. They, they would laugh at that. They'd be like, "All right, I'm just gonna, I'm just, I'm not even bunt." You know, like bunt is a lost art. I think it's a, you know, you never see anybody bunt anymore. And when you see a professional player bunt, it's, it's, it's actually sad. I mean, it's, it looks like, you know, like if I was up there bunting. So, it's well, uh, look, look what they're teaching minor leaguers now, uh, in, insofar as analytics. They're teaching them to do what we've been told exactly not to do for the last hundred years. Uppercut. Launch angle. Yeah, I We've been told that our whole lives and for whole generations. Don't do that. And all of a sudden, you know, these Harvard graduates come out and say, no, uppercut. Go ahead, do it. 
Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's funny because, like, uh, no, I was just going to say that it kind of reminds me of what ailed in the end. Uh, I mean, there's many different factors when it comes to Ike Davis. Now I am getting into a, a mess deep cut. But, mind you, his last great year, he was able to hit 32 home runs. But that swing, at, you know, being a, you know, he was only hitting 231. And this was somebody that I thought at, when he first came up, could be a 300 hitter uh and say what you want about the ankle injury uh, of course running into david Wright, but that's just be- basically became what his swing was was this uppercut swing like the art of hitting you know I, I mean you get in the batter's box see pitch hit pitch right well not so much anymore the art of going the other <laughs> way the art of hitting a high Strike or a low strike, outside part of the part, uh, of the plate, inside part of the plate, they make no distinction anymore. Every pitcher's trying to throw over a hundred miles an hour, and every batter's trying to hit it out of the park. And that's why strikeouts are through the roof, uh, bases on balls, and hardly any balls are being put in play. We don't get to see the beauty and the majesty of defense in its truest form. Yeah, I agree. So, you have been listening. You have been listening to the Bedford Sullivan podcast. And Rob, do you remember when you were, were worried that we wouldn't have something to talk about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I. Wow, boy, what is it? Let me see. What does my phone say? We've been on here for an hour and a half, so I'm sure we could go all night with this That's conversation. Right. But yeah, I mean, listen, it is 49 years old. Uh, it goes to show you. You know, the, the podcast, I, I think I've only listened to a, a handful, and, and you're the majority of them, and to participate in my first one, it's uh, oh, yeah. it, it's great. It's, it's great to be able to, to talk this, um, you know, talk about, you know, old old school baseball, you know, old old school New York. Uh, you know, don't even get me into the analytics. I am absolutely 100% against all that. I mean, I remember going to the Frogneck Library where I found out that, after calling for I don't know how many weeks, they finally had that book. I think uh, George Brett. I think it was George Brett, The Art of Hitting 300, and it was by uh, old uh, Charlie Lau, which I'm sure uh, you, know, you guys probably know. The old uh, hitting coach that helped Brett hit 390 back in in, in 1980. So I, I was always obsessed with that book because it was, you know, very you know it was full of illustration. But you know, Mike, as you know where I'm going with this. I remember clearly the pictures in there. It's like, okay, I, as a kid, I, I uppercut, uppercut, because who did I follow? Reggie, because Reggie hit the home run. <laughs> so, you know, I remember my father, stop uppercutting. Here, this is level swing, level swing. Come down on the ball, come down on the ball. And it seems like, you know, listen, I, I never made it past Sandlot. I played Sandlot ball in 1989 and, you know, played with some really good players. But uh, I, even my, my old, you know, hitting coach, Bill Eagle, uh, God bless him. He, uh, you know, I remember he would scream at me from the dugout on, you know, you know, uppercut again, and you know, he would get <laughs> me to be out of the game, you know, <laughs> you know, and it was just something that I had to work on, and and eventually it came to fruition where I was able to change my, you know, the the plane of my swing, and the results were, you know, the, the results were there. So I, I agree 100%. Like, wait, what's this launch angle? I'm like, no, the level swing, level swing. So, you know, obviously, it's, uh, 
you know, it, it, and, it works for a lot of people. They've invested in this. Like Mike said, you're, you're getting highly educated people who really were never around the game in any facet. So all of a sudden have, you know, total sway in a huge corporation, you know, uh, as these mm-hmm. uh, these uh, baseball franchises say, no, this is the way this this is the way the game's going to be played. This is the way, you know, these players should be, uh, uh, you know, swinging, you know, completely changing, which, you know, I think, uh, I, I don't think it's, you know, for the, it, in the long run is, is good for the game, but that shall be, that, that remains to be seen. It's kind of follow the leader. Uh, somebody won a World Series this way and everyone copied it. It's funny, look, 100 years ago, John McGraw hated Babe Ruth. Yeah, they played in the same ballpark and there were other reasons, but John McGraw hated Babe Ruth because John McGraw thought his players worked too damn hard to produce runs, and this big palooka was driving in runs with one swing of the bat. You know, and that really irritated John McGraw. And my point is that the game is constantly changing, constantly evolving. But as Rob just said, and we've been talking about, you know, how, how does a statistician, because that's what these people are, how does a statistician come in and dictate how to go about your craft? A craft. Right. Uh, and I pick that word very carefully. It's a craft. You know, it's not something, you, it, uh, it's an art. And, you know, it just excludes the human element. It excludes situational baseball. It excludes what experience and and very simply the eye test, you know, it, it excludes all that. No, this is what the stats say. That's fine for a 162-game season. But in the playoffs, you've got to throw all that out and you've got to manage and you've got to play baseball. And sometimes that means incorporating small ball. Now, if you aren't teaching that in the minor leagues and you aren't implementing or reinforcing or practicing that during the regular season, how the hell do you think your players are going to perform in the postseason when you ask them to do those little things that we have been ingrained since we're seven years old? That's where I think they're completely lost. Or the game is going to morph into something we saw on a Jetsons episode, and it's going to be completely <laughs> robotic. And Rob knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, well, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll say this, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, that uh, on International Women's Day, which I think I have the fact that we even have to – celebrate one specific day internationally is kind of ridiculous. But maybe since all we've talked about so far are men, that maybe what the game is greatly missing, whether it be on the field or off, are women. That too. And, and oh, you know, listen, their no. status in the game I place solely on baseball. You know? You have to create. You have to foster. You have to provide environments for people to learn, experience, grow, flourish. And then all these people become available across the whole range of baseball. 
you know, but that starts with each and every individual organization. They have to promote from within. They have to bring in the talent, and they have to promote and, and educate and, and train and do all that from within and build their resumes. This way they can circulate it around the league and say, here are my qualifications. But what organization is doing that? We only hear about one. We hear about two, maybe three. Right. That has to happen across the board. Rob, uh, you were you were going to say something to it. Yeah, that's I agree, and that's 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 kind of a it's a very slow moving process because of 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 how you know all all the major sports have, have operated with you know male dom you know male dominated. Uh, uh, Backgrounds in the, within the uh, the organizations. Now you see where the Yankees hired the uh, the new. Uh, I, I don't know her name, but the recent hire with the uh, I think she does uh, conditioning and she's like a, a hitting coach in the minors now. Where you know if you look at her resume, um, I don't know specifically, but she she certainly has the credentials uh, and the background and 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 put in the work. Uh, it wasn't just placed there, you know, just for the sake of being a woman, but she has the credentials of uh, that that earned her that that promotion to that spot, as well as the uh, uh, I believe the, the general manager of the, of the Marlins, who was uh, with mm-hmm. the Yankees organization for years and years, and you know, brought, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Jeter knew her for a long time, and and you know, another one, if you look at her resume, I, I think she was with the Yankees since the early to mid '90s. As far as working behind the scenes and working her way up the, uh, you know, the organizational ladder, and 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 now you see the fruition of her work where she's, you know, the GM of the Marlins. So, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I I guess it's it's progress, even though it's it's one in, you know, it's inching along very slowly. But that's right. just baseball. I mean, you see it. Uh, and we'd be, uh, you know, no, I was just going to say we'd be remiss. Uh, if we didn't mention Elizabeth Ben, who was hired uh, within also uh, this uh, New York baseball region by, by the New York Mets as the director of Major League Operations, making her the franchise's highest-ranking female baseball operations employee ever. Yeah, very good. Yes, I had, I had uh, that had passed me. So as soon as you said that, I'm like, yes, I remember seeing that lately. So, but uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, listen, anything. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, if you could bring, if you're an asset to the organization, no matter what skill it is, whether, you know, physical fitness or behind the scenes, you know, if you could bring something that could, you know, obviously improve, you know, the operation of the franchise, then sure, why not? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and we're so thankful you do. And we are going to move on to our final word. Um, it, 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 I do know that we could literally do an entire three-hour podcast, but we just don't have the time right now to do so. And, and firstly, I want to thank our, our featured guest, uh, the Bronx native, Rob Lopez, for joining us this evening. And, Rob, uh, please, as we like to say on this uh, show, tell everybody where they can find you. Shameless plug. Oh, well, I really uh, – outside of uh... – it's right now. I'm like I said. I'm showing my age. Uh, the only social media I have is uh, is Twitter. So 
So it's I believe it's RFL six thirty. That's my handle. So, but I really don't I, I, I don't post too much. I do a lot of retweets. Uh, if you know, if if I need to, if I need to say, I'll throw a little comment here and there on on things that are going on. But it's it's you know, in in these times, it's uh, you know, it's it's my source of of getting information, you know, news of what's going on out there. So uh, you know, like uh, you know, the New York Daily News was a was a staple in in the front of my door for for decades and decades. And you know, uh, the the old journalists, you know, like Bill Madden. Uh, the tail end of uh, Dick Young's career, I would read about him. I had, you know, I always, you know, I would tell my father, I'm like, I don't get it. Why is a, you know, I, I don't get why is this journalist always seem so angry? He goes, well, uh, you know, that, that's just the way he is. And then, you know, over the years, you get to, you know, hear about how bad Dick Young was. So, as, as I'm sure Mike, Mike, Mike would, would would tell, you know, especially with the, you know, the Seaver ordeal, which I was too young to remember, and, right. and then, you know, the Dwight Gooden, you know, drug thing, which I clearly remember. I'm like, oh, this guy's getting battered by this journalist so uh no but that's yes. it's the only social media that i have and you know my source of news and, and passing on you know information and 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 everything you guys post i always take an interest and in, you know look up and you know it's uh you know like i said i just want to say thank you and i you know i appreciate what you guys put out there you know i don't put too much information out there but i do listen and take heed to what you guys put out there and absorb it so you know i just want to say thank you for that well, thank you, Rob, and we really appreciate your listenership. We greatly appreciate uh, your follow your following on Twitter, um, and it, it's it's humbling, uh, one way or another, that this has any credence when it comes to information out there. So, thank you, uh, and um, give us your final word, Rob. All right. Well, uh, Mike, I just want to say it's a pleasure to have uh, met you through this platform. And uh, I'll tell you what, that, that Dodger Park on Sullivan and Rogers, like I already have it on my map there. That's That that was a great find. I had no idea about that. Uh, I did know about, and I, I don't know how recent it was installed, where the supposed uh, uh, home plate was for Ebbets Field, which I know is on the western edge of Sullivan Place in that uh, in the in in the parking lot, and it's actually on the sidewalk near one of the entrances to the building. It's like I don't know how that just popped up there out of nowhere because I don't know if someone did that privately. I don't know if I don't think the city per se was behind that, like the way they were behind the you know the John Brush stairway renovation. But it just seemed like it was just plopped in there. So. I don't know, you know, like I said, maybe we could uh, direct message each other with more information with that. But, you know, I was just wondering, like, how that came to be because it, it seemed to have popped up out of nowhere. So, but, you know, you know, again, Mike, thank you for sharing the information. I'm glad I was able to, you know, bring some some information to the table that you appreciated, especially on, uh, you know, the history of the city and, of course, the, the geology, which is a whole separate conversation than uh, and Sam, thank you for you know having me on here. I appreciate it. Your information's always been great, and uh, your postings are always great, especially with the stuff with um, your pin tweets with your father. That's pretty cool stuff. I really appreciate that. So, uh, and yeah, thank you. And you know, perhaps uh, I could jump in on another Carl uh, Carl Erskine uh, conversation because the the one time I was on there with you, that was a pleasure to talk to that man. Oh, Carl's amazing, and thank you uh, again regarding the uh, uh, my my dad's piece, uh, which I hope to uh, eventually over the next year or so 
share more of with the world. But yeah, Carl is just spin, you know, talks circles around me, and I would love to set that up. So I'll I'll try to reach out to Carl and see if we can get you also on an entire podcast regarding Carl Erskine. So thank you again, Rob, and thank you again for joining us tonight. And I will uh, uh, throw it over to my uh, my partner in podcast crime, Michael Colant, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger. As always, shameless plug away. Tell everyone where they can find you, and please, your final word as well. Shameless plug. Uh, you said it, Brooklyn Trolley blogger. Uh, I'll be getting back on track here shortly, just uh, devising what kind of project I'm going to embark on. Uh, last year... I replayed the, or recapped, I should say, the 1921 season of the New York Giants and the New York Yankees and how it culminated in the World Series of the Polo Grounds. Uh, that repeats itself in this upcoming season 100 years ago. I might do that. I might do other things. I'm still tossing it around. I might put a bunch of things in a hat and pick something out and stick with that. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, I just have a lot of fun talking baseball and Mets. Uh, with you, Sam, and Rich Barago, our other partner at the Metzian Podcast and all the guests we have. Rob, I, I want to thank you very, very kindly for all your kind words and uh, talking baseball tonight. I had I had a blast. I, I loved our conversation. And, uh, yeah, the geology, that would be a whole another hour. I would definitely enjoy that as well. Uh, otherwise, you know, <laughs> and I might baseball... get a New York City ge- geologist because, of, like, after after this podcast, you guys may have given me a excellent idea for an entire episode, by the way. So thank you. <laughs> uh, other, otherwise, baseball, yeah, they got their issues, you know, and they're like family. Sometimes you get along, sometimes you don't. Uh, but for the moment, they can stick it. I got the Brooklyn Cyclones and Staten Island Fire yeah, right baby. around the corner. I can satisfy myself with that anytime. Brooklyn Cyclones, my favorite team in all the planet, okay, until MLB gets back on the field. Uh, and and you give me a good idea for my final word. We are family. Whether it's Rob, whether it's Mike, whether it's the Brooklyn Cyclones, or whether it's all of the fans of baseball or and or baseball itself, we are family. So sometimes, of course, there are family squabbles, and you can't even believe you're related to these people. But eventually... You hug it out, you get it done, and you come back to actually playing the game that we know and love so dear. Thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Thank you for continuing to fuel my creativity and my passion for this project. I cannot wait for it in so many different war- well of, of realms and, and potential beings of, of material. I cannot wait for this to materialize. So thank you again for continuing to listen, and we'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody. All right, gentlemen. Have a good night. Good night, all. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.